please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. Um, as many of you know, once the Sermon on the Mount concluded, um, Matthew, he started to get into some pretty significant things pretty quickly. Like as soon as the Sermon on the Mount ended, he started getting into some really important things. Um, last week, we looked at Jesus cleansing a man with leprosy. Uh, and then after he did that, we, we saw him heal a Roman centurion's servant, a Gentile. He healed his servant. And then after that, we saw him rebuke uh, a fever out of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And so he healed her. And then Matthew, he went on to, um, to write that Jesus started healing and delivering many, many people after that. It was just a bunch of healing and deliverance after that. So after looking at uh, some of Jesus' most powerful words about the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew gets right into Jesus' most powerful works uh, that have to do, that, that, give, that gave people a taste of the kingdom of heaven, the perfection and the healing and the wholeness that is in the kingdom of heaven. And tonight we're going to be looking at the weight. We're going to be looking at the weight of the kingdom of heaven for those who wish to enter it, because it is, it is weighty for those of us who want to enter it. And so if you're taking notes, the title of tonight's message is What's Holding Us Back? What's Holding Us Back? And um, it's, a tough, it's a tough question. And so hopefully we'll be able to be humbled by the love of God and be able to answer that question honestly. So let's go ahead and read our verses for tonight. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. And this is what it says. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another one of his disciples said, First, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And so I want to get as many details as possible about uh, regarding this, this story, these conversations that took place. So let's turn our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke now. The Gospel of Luke chapter 9, that's where we find a little more detail about these conversations. Luke chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 57 through 62. All right. Luke 9, verse 57. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, Foxes have dens, and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then he said to another, Follow me. Lord, he said, First let me go bury my father. But he told him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those in my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so we seem to have some pretty, some pretty harsh and difficult words on our hands. Again, I mean, in the last time that we saw some harsh words from Jesus, it was like last week, you know, some really, some really difficult words. Um, but let's see if we can understand the, these words um, for those of you who are, um, some of you are aware that we're, we're reading a chronological Bible reading plan. Uh, we were supposed to have someone come up and talk about it, but, you know, we kind of skipped that to get into the Word. But um, we're reading a chronological Bible reading plan right now. 
And um, I don't know where we are in that, because I'm like in Exodus. I'm like jumping ahead, but Genesis 26. All right, that's where we are. <laughs> um, but many, many, chron- well, one chronological reading plan, it has this conversation that we read, that we just read. It has this conversation happening after Jesus's brother's Uh, basically try to call him out. They try to call Jesus out. You know, Jesus, he decides not to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles because it says that the religious leaders are trying to kill him. So, I mean, that's a pretty good reason not to go to Jerusalem. Like, okay, people are trying to kill me. I think I'm gonna just lay back. Um, But uh, his brothers, they begin to tell him like, like sarcastically, almost mocking him, like, why don't you just go? You're trying to get all this fame. Why don't you just go to Jerusalem? Show people who you are, you know? And so they're obviously not believing in him. And so he decides to stay behind in Galilee. But then eventually he decides, nah, I'm going to go. And so he goes to Jerusalem, but he goes secretly. He goes covertly, and he goes with his disciples. And he tries to go through Samaria. Him and his disciples try to go through Samaria to find, find a little place to rest in Samaria. But they face hostility there because there was beef between the Samaritans and proper Jews. And Jesus and his disciples being proper Jews, there's, there's beef there. And so they had to move on to another village. And, and, and that's where this conversation took place. Uh, as they're going to another village, that's where this conversation happens. But Matthew, he places this conversation with these people um, after the healing of the three outcasts that we looked at last week. And, and, he, he, af- and he places th- these conversations after he, he quotes Isaiah 53 to, to say that Jesus fulfilled prophecy, that he was going to take our sicknesses and, and take our diseases. But why? Why did he do that? Why didn't he put it chronologically? Well, remember, Matthew was writing his gospel for a Jewish readership. He was writing his gospel for the Jews so that they would come to believe that this Yeshua, that Yeshua was the Mashiach, that he was the Messiah, the Holy and Anointed One, the Son of God, the King of the Jews. And so Matthew, he, he keeps pounding it into the minds of his Jewish readers, the high position of Jesus Christ. And as Matthew goes into this portion of these verses that we read earlier, he highlights the fact that the first person that came up to Jesus, telling him that he would follow him wherever he goes, he was a scribe. It was a scribe that came up to him. You know, Luke doesn't give us this detail, but Matthew does. A scribe. A scribe was, was they, they were the experts of the Old Testament law. These guys knew the law. They knew the law of God. If, if the leper, the Roman, the Roman centurion, and uh, Peter's mother-in-law, a woman, if they were the outcasts during this time, then, then the scribes, the scribes would be part of the in crowd during this time. Like this guy represents the law of God. And frequently it was the scribes and the Pharisees who would confront Jesus to challenge him on some of the things that he was saying and doing. And so these guys were not friendly to Jesus, but this scribe is telling Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Like wherever you go, I'm I'm going with you. Now this is hugely significant because this would have had the Jewish audience of that time kind of like, what what in the world is going on? That there's a scribe telling Jesus, this, this, this blasphemer, that he'll follow him wherever he goes. And don't forget that when, when Matthew closes the Sermon on the Mount, he says that the people were astonished because Jesus was teaching with authority as someone who had authority unlike their scribes. And, and if we follow the proposed chronology of the Gospels, 
many plans. They put this conversation between Jesus and this scribe, they put it after Jesus's words in Matthew 13, 52, when Jesus says, therefore, every teacher of the law or every scribe, every scribe who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. They're bringing out all kinds of treasures. But why did Jesus say this? Why did he say this? Because once a scribe, if a scribe becomes a disciple and a follower of Jesus, that Old Testament law that they know so well, they know it so well, their eyes will be open to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. He's the fulfillment of all of it. He's everywhere. Types and shadows of Jesus Christ are all over the law and the prophets, and they will be able to show others what they now see. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about there being a blindness, that, that the, the, the Jews, they have a, there's, a, there's a blindness, there's a veil over their eyes. And, and he, he goes on to talk about how Moses, when he would meet with the Lord on Mount Sinai, when he came down from the mountain, he would cover his face with the veil because the glory of God was shining from his face. His face was glowing. And so he was hiding the glory of God from, from the people, from the Israelites. And, and this, is, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. He says, For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So once that veil gets removed from a scribe, an expert of the law, that scribe who was unable to see Jesus because of that veil of sin and disbelief, once that veil is removed through their belief in Jesus, through their coming to him, man, the scribe can now see that Jesus is everywhere. He's all over the Old Testament. And that's why, that's why it's so important for us to have some sort of understanding or, or at least for us to attempt to understand the, the Jewish context of the scriptures. For, for those of you guys who may not be aware, this entire book is a Jewish book. This is a Jewish book. And so it's so important to have that understanding because a lot of times when you, when you leave that context, that Jewish context, you start to get into some really funky things. Like, hey, I'm not trying to start a fight or anything, but a lot of that Reformed theology stuff, it comes from a place of not understanding the Jewish context of a lot of scriptures. You have to understand the scriptures totally. Because a lot of New Testament scriptures, they have their full understanding when you go to the Old Testament. They have co-texts, they have co-scriptures, and the only way that you're going to fully understand it is if you, if you look at both. The problem with some of these guys, these like Reformed guys and Calvinist guys, is that they're only looking at the New Testament. That's all that they're looking at, but they're not going to the Old Testament to look at the, the, the full picture. So it's important to know all of these things. And so when you have an expert in the Old Testament scriptures having his eyes open to the Messiah, he's able to draw out draw out so much treasure from the scriptures that point to the Messiah, that point to the kingdom. And so we have this scribe who has seemingly had his eyes opened. 
right? He, he seems to have had his eyes open. He sees Jesus. That's the only way that a scribe would come to Jesus. That, that's the only reason that a scribe would leave his tribe of religious leaders to now turn to Jesus and say, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. This scribe understood that this Jesus of Nazareth was the coming king, the son of man that was talked about in Daniel 7. You know, in Daniel 7, there, there's a portion in, in, in verses 9 and 10. It says, Daniel is seeing a vision in the night, and he's describing this vision. And this is what he says in, in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. He says, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head was like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out of his presence, Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened and the books were open. Now, this is about the Lord, the creator of the universe. The, the, this is the Lord God that, that Daniel saw. But then Daniel sees another person. And it says this in verse 13. He says, I continued watching in the night vision. And suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, why is this significant? He approached the Ancient of Days. He approached the Lord God, the creator of, of the heavens and earth. He approached the Ancient of Days and, and, and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, every nation, and every language should serve him, should serve the Son of Man, his dominion, the Son of Man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. When Jesus was being falsely accused the night before his crucifixion, they asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, which, hey, I am. That's a very significant thing to say. We'll get into that in a second. He said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man Referencing Daniel chapter 7, he said, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus was declaring himself the Son of Man who was to receive dominion and glory and kingdom, a kingdom that would last forever. Now, if you're going to receive glory and dominion and a kingdom that will last forever, that's, that, 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 that's pretty godly. You know what I mean? That, that, that's pretty God-ish. Like for, for that to be given to you, you're, you're kind of God-ish at that point. But, but, but Jesus, he makes it even more clear. He's like, no, no, okay, I, I don't want y'all to think I'm just God-ish. Look, he, sa he said, I am. I am. The, the name of the Lord, the name that he gave to Moses when he sent him to set the people free from Egypt, he said, tell them I am that I am sent you. Jesus says, I'm the Lord. I am the God. I'm, I'm the God who created the heavens and the earth as well. I was there. And John 1 tells us that. And so this is who Jesus was. And, and this is who the scribe understood him to be. So this understanding, it moved this scribe to tell Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. I know who you are. I will follow you wherever you go. And what was Jesus' response? He said, foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man, the Son of Man who's going to come on the clouds, the Son of Man who is going to receive an eternal kingdom, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He has no place to lay his head. The Gospels don't tell us exactly why Jesus responded with these words, but I believe that we can safely conclude that perhaps this scribe 
while having a solid understanding of who Jesus was. He understood who Jesus was. He was coming to Jesus, not fully understanding why Jesus came. He didn't really get why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to Israel that first time in order to take over a kingdom, in order to receive a kingdom. Not, not, not the first time. The first visit of Jesus was to receive a crown of thorns and a splintered cross. That's what he came for the first time. He came to suffer. He came to suffer. Just before writing this story in Matthew, just before writing this story in verse 18 and verse 17, like I told you guys, he quoted Isaiah 53 to describe how he was healing people, that he was a fulfillment of that, of that prophecy. But that's not the only thing that's contained in that prophecy in Isaiah 53, that he was going to heal and take away our diseases. That prophecy describes the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant, not necessarily the son of man, although the suffering servant and the son of man are one and the same. But the first trip for Jesus to this earth was for him to suffer. He didn't come with an impressive form or majesty or appearance that, that would make him desirable to people. He came to be despised and rejected by men, by his own people. He came to be despised and rejected. He, he, he was a man acquainted with suffering. He knew what grief was. He came so that people would turn away from him. He came so that people would despise him. He came so that people would devalue him. This is why he came. He came to be punished by God the Father, not for his own iniquities, but for the iniquities of the world. And he came to be crushed. He came to be treated like a criminal, to be crushed by his Father, because he would be taking on our sins. So perhaps this scribe thought, hmm, like maybe I could hitch a ride on the Son of Man's glory train. Like this is the Son of Man, clearly. Let me, let me, let me get on this train. This is going to lead to glory and to a kingdom. But Jesus, he sobers this guy up and he tells him, this road's not easy. This road is not easy. This train that you want to get on, it's not an easy train to get on. The Christian life is not easy. It is not easy. It was never meant to be easy. It, it didn't get easy until, in, until, you know, the West showed up and, and we, you know, we had our, our Christian, Judeo-Christian values. But dude, before, before this country, Christian, the, the life of a Christian was not easy. And it was never meant to be. Every time Jesus talks about following him or, or, or being his disciple, he talks about it as it being difficult. It's never talked about as something that is easy, which begs the question, is your walk easy? Is your following Jesus easy? Is your walk with Christ pretty smooth? Or is there difficulty on this road for you? Now, I'm not talking about the barista got your latte wrong. You ordered an oat milk latte, but they gave you whole milk. Ah, persecution. No. I'm not talking about you go to the restaurant and the server, they bring you a regular burger, and, but I ordered an impossible burger with gluten-free buns. What is this? No. I'm talking about real difficulty as it pertains to your walk with Jesus. Now, if before you ordered your food, you told your server about Jesus and how God loves them and that they need to repent of their sins, but that's why Jesus came to die for their sins and all of that. And then you get your impossible burger and you're like, I don't remember vegan mayo looking like someone hocked a loogie. Okay, that may, maybe like that's persecution, but also have some perspective. What are you doing? You're, you're, at, you're, you're going to a place, you have the finances to be able to pay these servants, essentially, to take your food order, make your food, bring your food to you, make sure you have all the, your drinks are always refilled, make sure your bottomless fries are always bottomless, and then, and then they clean up after you. So at the end of the day, sure, you, maybe you got some persecution, but you're still super blessed, have some perspective. 
But are you comfortable? Are you comfortable? Are you comfortable in your walk with Christ? Is there a lot of comfort? You know, one of my greatest fears is, is becoming uh, a Dave Ramsey Christian. Now, for those of you who don't know who Dave Ramsey is, no knock against the guy. He's, he's, a, he's like a financial guy. He, he's all about getting people out of debt, and he's a Christian. He's all about getting people out of debt and moving them to a place where they can, you know, start investing in retirement and creating wealth so that they can be generous and all that stuff. And, and um, mo- mostly his, his strategy is basically stop being stupid. You know, like if, if you make $10,000 a year, don't buy a $20,000 vehicle, you know, and, and let, me, let me upgrade that. Like if you make $40,000 a year, what are you doing buying an $80,000 vehicle? You, you don't make enough to pay for that, so stop doing that. Um, or like if you got $80,000 in student loans, you should not be going out to eat. Like you should be beans and rice, rice and beans, which by the way, beans and rice are amazing, so I don't know why he's knocking it like that. But this is, this is his whole deal, is like getting people out of debt so that they can create wealth. And like his slogan is like, if you live like no one else, meaning you don't spend money like, like it's no, nobody's business. If you live like no one else, later you can live like no one else, right? Like, oh, the life of luxury and all that stuff, yeah. But like one of the, the, way that they, the way that he Christianizes it is that like, well, because once you build that wealth, then you can be giving then you can be giving. But let me tell you something. If you're not giving now, you're not going to be giving later. If, if, you're, if, you, if you make 10 grand a year, but you're, not, but you're giving, if the Lord were to give you a million a year, you're going to continue to be giving. But if you're stingy with the 10K, you're going to be stingy with the million. So it doesn't matter. It, none of that matters. It, it's, it's an issue of the heart. But one of my greatest fears is, is becoming this type of person who just wants to create comfort for myself. Because that sounds good, right? Like, oh, if I live like no one else now, later I can live like no one else. That sounds great. Yeah, and I could be giving. And I want to be comfortable. But Jesus says that following him, it's not comfortable. It is not comfortable. He says, I have nowhere to rest. I have nowhere to rest. The foxes, they, they have somewhere to rest. They have a home. The birds, they have a nest. They have a home but I, don't, I, don't, I have nowhere to rest. I don't have a home. This isn't my home. And if you follow me, you're not going to have a home either. This is not your home. And you won't be home until you enter into my kingdom. This, this is challenging. As I was preparing, like I was, this was so challenging for me. This is challenging. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I'm like you guys. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I want to have an easy life. I want to go on vacations all the time. I want to spend all my time in Hawaii and Costa Rica and all these. I want to do all this stuff. I want to have rest and relaxation. I want to enjoy comfort. I want this stuff to be my life. I mean, it doesn't mean that we're never going to experience these things as Christians, but we cannot have these things be our focus. They cannot be our focus. This is not our home. We cannot get so distracted in pursuing success, in pursuing the 401ks, in pursuing the pension, in, in pursuing the American dream, which it's only in America that, this, that we can have this dream, which is great, but it's also a curse. If we're so focused on this American dream that we forget that none of this stuff is going with us, none of it is going with us. The only things that are going with us, believer, are the things that we do for Jesus. Those are the, everything else is going to get burned up. Everything else is going to get burned up. 
only thing that will remain are the things that we did for Jesus. We need to make ourselves uncomfortable. This is what this walk is. It's uncomfortable. And, 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 to, and to apply that to our immediate context, does going out evangelizing make you uncomfortable? Does, does instead of coming here on a Friday night where it's kind of warm, but then sometimes it's kind of cold because if it's too warm in here, it starts to get a little funky. So we got to make sure it's, it's a little cool in here. So bring your jackets. But instead of coming here on a Friday night and, and getting into some worship where it's safe, we have walls around us, and, th- and then getting into the word and then getting into some fellowship, if, if, if instead of doing that and going to the Santa Monica Pier where it's cold and you're going to be talking to people who don't want to be bothered, but we're going to tell them about Jesus, if that thought makes you uncomfortable, then good. Let's go get uncomfortable because this walk is supposed to be uncomfortable. It's not supposed to be easy. Don't forget about a month ago, we looked at Jesus's words. He was talking about how the road that leads to this narrow gate of eternal life is difficult. It is a difficult road that leads to eternal life. It's not easy, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And he also said that many who, who Not many are going to find this road. Not many are going to choose to be on this road because it's too difficult. And then he also said that many people, they're going to be on the road, so they think, and they're going to get to him on that final day, and they're going to be like, I know you. And he's like, I I don't know you. You might know me, but I don't know you. So you can go. You can leave. Let us not allow our desire for comfort and ease pull us away from actually following Jesus. You guys, I'm speaking to myself, okay? Like, I'm, first and foremost, I'm speaking to myself on this one. This is challenging. I was telling my wife last night when we were about, I was like, I don't like what the Lord is, 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 is talking about. I don't, I don't want to preach this message because it, it challenges me. But, but we got to follow him. And so after this conversation that Jesus has with the scribe, Jesus turns to one of his disciples and he tells him, he says, hey, follow me. And, and this disciple, he tells Jesus, let me go bury my dad first. Let me go bury my dad first. And Jesus responds with, let the dead bury the dead. You come and you go spread the news of the kingdom of God. You go spread the news of the kingdom of God. I wonder, I wonder what that means, go spread the news of the kingdom of God. It seems kind of ambiguous. Yeah. And then still another person comes up to Jesus and tells him that, that he would follow him. But if he could just go back and say goodbye to those who are in his home. Let, let, me, let me go back. I'll follow you, but let me go back and say goodbye to those who are in my home. To which Jesus responds, you, can, you, you can't follow me. You cannot follow me. And then at the same time, look back longingly at what you're going to be leaving behind. Now, these interactions, they may, they may seem harsh. They may seem like they're lacking compassion at first glance. But that's why, as I always say, you must look at everything in its totality. Everything in its totality. Look at Jesus and his heart in its totality. And in its totality, Jesus, he's kind, he's compassionate. He is frank and he is brutally honest, but he is also love and he's also grace. And he's all the amazing things that we love about him. But Jesus sees beyond what we can see. His eyes see beyond what our eyes see. He sees that these people who are coming to him, he knows that their hearts aren't quite there. Their hearts aren't quite there. You know, these people, they're, they're just barely missing the mark. They're barely missing the mark. But in God's kingdom, barely missing the mark is completely missing the mark. 
You jump three feet, I jump 300 feet. We both miss the mark. Their hearts weren't right. And so Jesus, in, in these verses in Matthew that we were reading, he says a similar thing here in Matthew 8, as he's recorded saying in Luke 14, where he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, hate his own mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Now look, Jesus isn't actually saying, hate your father or your mother or your wife or your brother. He's not saying, he's not actually saying that because then he'd be violating the commandment to honor your father and mother. He'd be violating the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus wouldn't do that. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. So what is he saying? What is he saying when he says you need to hate your family or, or let the dead bury your father, you go share the gospel or, or when he's saying, forget saying goodbye to the, for what you're leaving behind, you come and follow me. Don't even bother with that. You come and follow me. What, what, what's he saying through this? It's all about where our hearts are. It's all about where your allegiance is. Where is your heart? Where's your allegiance? Where does Jesus rank in your heart? Where does he rank in your heart? Because the guy who was asking to bury his dad, the dad wasn't dead yet. He wasn't dead yet. His dad was still alive. That's implied in the text. His dad wasn't dead yet. So how long was he going to wait before actually following Jesus? How long was he going to wait? How much time was it going to be before he finally surrendered, actually surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And, and once his dad did die, once he did bury his dad, what was going to be the next excuse? Well, well now, now I got to wait for my mom to die. And the person who wanted to go back home to say goodbye to the things that were at his home, it's obvious from Jesus' response that this guy was looking behind him instead of looking at what was ahead, what was in front of him. What was in his house, what was in his house that he was leaving behind that was holding him back from fully committing to following Jesus? What sins or pleasures were keeping him from finally getting to the work of the Lord? And these questions, they need, they need, they need to be applied to us. They have to be applied to us. Like the scribe, you may have all the knowledge. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. You grew up going to church. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a while now. You've been a Christian for a few years. You've, you've heard all the Bible studies. You, you, you've seen all the, 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 the viral videos on TikTok. You know, you, you know, you've read the Bible a few times. You, 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 you know it. You know all the worship songs. You know when to raise your hand. You know when to say amen. You are very fluent in Christianese. Maybe this describes you. But something is keeping you from turning that knowledge into action, actually doing something about it. Something is keeping that knowledge going from your brain to your heart. Is it the, is, is it the prospect of, of, of losing comfort? Is it the prospect of discomfort? Is that keeping you from, from taking that knowledge and applying it in action? Are, are you comfortable? Are you living comfortably? You don't want to lose that? Is there an ease of life that you are afraid that you're going to lose by actually following Jesus? What does it profit you if you gain everything that you could ever want, but you forfeit or you lose your soul? There's no profit in that. Absolutely none. What excuses are we making? Like that disciple who, who Jesus told, he said, hey, follow me. Matthew wrote that he was already a disciple. He was already a disciple. Jesus said, he turned to his disciple and he said, follow me. 
So this guy was already, he was already hanging around Jesus. He was already learning from Jesus. He, he, that's what a disciple is, a student, a learner. He was already learning from Jesus. So why did Jesus say to follow him if he was already a disciple? He wasn't fully committed. He wasn't fully committed. So here's the question for us. What is keeping us from full commitment? What is keeping us from full commitment? What excuses are we making? What excuses are we making? What timeline are we putting on our faithfulness and commitment to Jesus that we aren't going to actually stick to? Once I get out of this season of like, man, it's just really busy. Like work is really busy. Once I get out of this season, then, then I can fully commit to Jesus. You know, I, I just got into this relationship, you know, it's like once, once me and my boyfriend, we, you know, we, we kind of get established or me and my girlfriend, once, once she recognizes that I'm the authority, you know, then, then you know, then after that, then, then, then I'll really follow Jesus. But things are kind of shaky right now. Like I want to make sure this relationship is established. Or, or well, I'm, as soon as I'm done with school, man, school is a monster. But as soon as I'm done with school, once school is over, once I get that piece of paper, then, then I will be more committed. I'll have the headspace to be more committed to Jesus. It's all wrong. It's all wrong. Because if it's not one thing, it will be another. If you're making one excuse, you're going to keep making excuses. There's always going to be something. And just like that last person, that, that they were looking back. Let me go back to my house. Is, what are you looking back at? Like, what, what's, what's distracting you? Like, what, what things are you looking back at and think that you're going to miss? What, what, what sins are you wishing that you could still take part in? And you're just kind of like, oh, I feel like I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. What dreams, what, what dreams, what aspirations are you lamenting over? Because you know that that dream or that aspiration has nothing to do with the will of God for you. And so it's keeping you. What thing or things are you looking back on that are causing you to be distracted and you're not focused on following Jesus? You're not focused. I can tell you that none of it is worth it. Not a single, a single one of it is worth it. Nothing is worth it. There's a song lyric. We've sung it at this church before, but it, it, says, um, it says, there is nothing, so good, there is nothing in this life worth the cost of losing you. And is it even a sacrifice if I trade my world to get you? Can you even call that a sacrifice? You're the treasure, you're the prize, Jesus, only you. There is nothing, there is nothing in this world worth keeping or worth holding on to if it comes at the cost of losing Jesus, of truly following Jesus. There is nothing worth it, nothing. There's no comfort, there's no ease, there's no lifestyle, there's, there's no sin, there's no, there's no procrastination, no distraction, nothing, nothing, no sin, no fleshly pleasure, nothing is worth keeping and holding on to if it means you are going to lose Jesus. Many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons and perform miracles? And I will say, I did not know you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. 
Nothing is worth it. The call of Jesus Christ is higher than any other obligation that we have in our life, any other commitment that we have in our life. Our priority is always Jesus. It's always Jesus. And the amazing thing about the Lord, amazing thing about the Lord, is that when we do give up these things for him, when we do give up these sins for him, when we do give up these aspirations for him, when we, when we, when we say, when we decide, okay, Jesus, my allegiance is to you, my, every, all of my actions are going to be based on what you say, not on what my parents say, not on what my brother or sister say, not on what my friends say, none of that. I'm only concerned about your opinion and your opinion is in your word. That's the only thing I'd be concerned about. When we do that, when we sacrifice everything for him, when we forsake ourselves for the purpose of following him, man, his blessing, his blessing greatly outweighs, greatly outweighs anything that we would lose, greatly outweighs anything that we would give up for him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, he says, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields and with persecutions. Jesus always kept it real. There's going to be persecution. Give up all that stuff just so that you can get some more, some, some persecution. But not only will you get these things back here and now, you will also have eternal life in the age to come. You will have eternal life in the age to come. What we are giving up absolutely cannot be compared to what we are getting in return. Absolutely cannot be compared. What we are getting in return is far more valuable than what we are giving up. And so as we prepare, we'll get into it. As we prepare for a time of prayer, as you get into your groups, just whatever the Lord is putting on your heart, whatever the Lord is putting on your heart. So we're, we're, we're going to, let's pray. Father, thank you once again for bringing us here. Thank you for your word. And God, I pray that this word would just dwell richly within us, God, that it would not leave us the moment we leave this place, God, but that we would just be more committed to you, Lord, that we'd be more focused on you. And God, um, I just pray now as we enter into this time of prayer, God, that it would just be a beneficial time, a blessing, um, encouraging, edifying, God. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.